Hello and welcome to this week's Lancet podcast. I'm Rona MacDonald and I'm covering for Richard Lane who's on holiday this week. We've a lot going on in this week's issue, including the Lancet's contribution to the Council of Science Editors' global theme issue on global poverty and human development. As we say in a lead editorial this week, The Lancet is one of 235 journals from 37 countries covering every region of the world which participated in this special issue. Collectively, nearly 750 articles were published, representing 110 countries. And why are we doing this? Well, the statistics on global poverty are appalling, says the editorial. Over 1 billion people throughout the world still live on less than $1 a day. And despite the fact that the world is generally richer and there is enough food in the world to feed the global population twice over, the number of people living in absolute poverty has actually increased by 200,000 over the past 10 years. Such figures are shocking and a shameful indictment on the international community. But sometimes drawing attention to global poverty is not enough. As the leader says, during the past four years since our first child survival series in 2003, the Lancet's focus on global health issues such as maternal survival, sexual and reproductive health and global mental health, has sought to act as an advocacy tool to make science the catalyst for political change. The global partnerships and initiatives that have been formed after each series aim to enhance evidence-based policymaking and bring about lasting improvements in human health. But, ends the leader, there is no room for complacency. By the end of today, 30,000 more people will have died from poverty-related illnesses. We should never let the familiarity of the statistics dull the outrageousness of the situation. So there's much to celebrate in the astounding feat of cross-journal partnership, but we can and should do a great deal more. So, what are we covering in this week's issue? Well, for our global poverty contribution, we have a comment from Marion Birch, who's the director of the campaigning medical charity MedAct. She outlines why health professionals should be involved in global poverty. The fact that health professionals have to patch up the end result of global policies add weights to statements they make about causes of human suffering. Good cooperation between health professionals at local, regional and international levels means they can emphasise links between disease, inequality and power. Together, health workers can draw attention to global policies that limit the abilities of national and regional governments to make policy choices that are good for health. That sounds convincing to me. We also have a comment by Martin McKee and colleagues which look at health investment for economic development in Central Asia and Eastern Europe. They outline how this is a very neglected area of the world. Similarly to Sub-Saharan Africa, Eastern Europe and Central Asia include many countries with declining life expectancy. However, their economies are different from Sub-Saharan Africa because many countries have substantial industrial sectors and generally a more developed infrastructure. Eastern Europe and Central Asia's pattern for health is also different. A far greater share of disease burden is accounted for by complex non-communicable diseases and injuries, and thus findings from Africa might not apply directly. Countries in Eastern Europe and Central Asia are also largely overlooked in the global health arena, receiving much less development assistance for health than might be expected in view of the extent of their health and economic development. We also have a special report on global health governance at the World Bank by Jennifer Prarugar. She says that there are at least three crucial areas where the bank can help countries strengthen health systems through a political economy of health approach. She says it can help countries grow their economies equitably, help countries establish good governments in the public and health sectors and aid countries with health policy reform. She concludes by saying that the bank must make better use of its role in providing policy advice and technical assistance to aid countries not only in building health systems but also in eliminating their need for bank assistance. 
After all, the ultimate goal of the bank should be to put itself out of business, to shape a world whose health sectors are sustainable and can function effectively without assistance from the World Bank. Hear, hear. We also have a book review on Paul Collier's acclaimed book, The Bottom Billion, Why the Poorest Countries Are Failing and What Can Be Done About It. This book has already attracted much interest from people desperately looking for constructive solutions for the world's poor, not just for ending war, but also for alleviating poverty. In his review, William Easterly says that Collier promises a pragmatic evidence-based look at what works in poor countries and thus many commentators have welcomed his book as the long-sought middle way between the critics and the cheerleaders of foreign aid. And finally for our global poverty contribution, we have a profile on Joy Fufami, leader in human development at the World Bank. So what else have we got in this week's issue? Well, I'll be talking in a wee minute to the author of a paper which shows that hysterectomy more than doubles the risk of requiring stress urinary incontinence surgery. We also published a paper this week showing that patients given human atrial natriuretic peptide, that's ANP, postmyocardial infarction have lower infarct size, fewer reperfusion injuries and better outcomes than those in the control group. Professor Masafumi Kitakazi from Osaka in Japan and colleagues did two randomised trials, one which assessed the effect of ANP and the other the effect on nicroandal on infarct size and cardiovascular outcome. The researchers found that in the ANP trial, infarct size was reduced by around 15% and left ventricular ejection fraction increased by an average of 5% in patients given ANP compared with placebo. In the nicroandrol trial, nicroandrol administration did not decrease infarct size. However, oral administration of nicroandrol during follow-up did increase LEVF, that's left ventricular ejection fraction, between chronic and acute phases. The authors conclude that their findings show that the treatment with ANP in the acute phase reduced the incidence or readmission to hospital for chronic heart failure could help to reduce the physical, medical and economic burdens of people around the world. In an accompanying comment, Richard Bogle and Martin Wilkins from Imperial College in London and Hammersmith Hospital in London say, Use of ANP as a treatment for acute myocardial infarction needs further investigation in a double-blind study to assess the dose-response association, to test the robustness of the findings and to further evaluate the mechanism of action before exposing many patients to this treatment. We also published a paper which showed that the synergistic combination of available nosocomial infection control strategies could prevent nearly half of XDR-TB, that's extensively drug-resistant tuberculosis cases, even in resource-limited settings. As you know, XDR-TB has been reported in 37 countries throughout the world. South Africa has been the largest cluster of XDR cases, with incidents in every region of the country. Sanjay Basu from Yale University, USA and colleagues combined computer modelling with data from a multi-year epidemiological survey to investigate the effect of administration, environmental and personal infection control measures on the epidemic trajectory of XDR tuberculosis in one region of South Africa. They conclude by saying that their current projections highlight the need for immediate action in addressing the XDR tuberculosis epidemic. The burden of XDR-TB on the health system is already high in this area and is expected to rise substantially over the next few years. An accompanying comment says that multi-drug and extensive drug resistance are monsters of our own creation. They might be with us longer than we think and might need us to spend more than governments or institutions are able to pay. Although scientific warnings are often ignored until too late, effective interventions for the control of XDRTB in Africa are national and international responsibilities, and the world community ignores this message at their great peril. 
And now back to that paper on hysterectomy and the risk of stress urinary incontinence surgery that I was talking about earlier. I'm joined now by Dr. Daniel Altman, who's one of the lead authors on the paper we published this week, which showed the risk of stress urinary incontinence surgery following hysterectomy. Dr. Altman, what were the main findings of your study? Well, we found that hysterectomy on benign indications increases the risk for stress urinary incontinence surgery at short and long term. And we could also see that there were particular risk groups with regard to multiparous women and women having undergone the hysterectomy at a young age or before menopause. These patient groups were at particular risk of developing stress urinary incontinence in need of surgical intervention later in life. Okay, and this is one of the trials that was done from using a Swedish database. So can you tell us a bit about how you went about it? Well, we began by identifying all Swedish women having had a hysterectomy in between 1973 and 2003. And we then mapped a control group to these women by date of birth from the register of the total population and made sure that none of the women in the control group had had a hysterectomy. And then we mapped both groups to the inpatient registry, uh, which is a nationwide Swedish register established in 1968, I think, with complete national coverage since 1987. And we matched both groups to, to the inpatient registry, and we used stress urinary incontinence surgery as our primary outcome measure. Okay, can I just ask you a bit about that primary outcome measure? Because obviously not all women who suffer from stress urinary incontinence will require surgery. Well, that, that, that's correct. And this is a limitation of our study. What we can see are the patients are the women who have had incontinence surgery. And it is our assumption that these are the women with the most difficult problems. We also recognize that what we see is probably the tip of the iceberg. We see the worst cases who have undergone surgery. And there's probably much, much more women out there who suffer from incontinence problems or who for some reason have not done it, those or been, uh, had incontinence surgery available. So how confident are you in the findings? Because as I'm sure you know, in the accompanying comment that went with your article by Adam Magos from the Royal Free Hospital at London, he questions the findings. And, and part of what he says was that you yourselves published a study a few years ago, which actually showed the opposite of the results that you show now. So can you tell us a bit about that, please? Unfortunately, Dr. Margot chose to present his side of the case and question our data based on a very selective way of seeing things. First of all, the study we did previously did not have a non-hysterectomized control group. What we did was to compare two different ways of doing hysterectomy, see if there was a difference in the risk for incontinence surgery, and there wasn't, which is pretty much what we find in this study as well. So I would say that our previous work is pretty much in line with our current study. Uh, there's a number of studies out there which have tried to establish an association between hysterectomy and incont- development of incontinence. And unfortunately, most of the studies did not include a non-hysterectomized control group. So in this way, our study is one of very few studies to actually have a non-hysterectomized control group. So I think it's a little bit biased and unfair to compare our study with studies who doesn't have non-hysterectomized women as controls. This is essential to the understanding of whether or not hysterectomy has an impact or not. Okay, thank you. Well, Dr. Magus isn't here to get his opinion. So really what you're saying is that we can be confident in the results of this trial, that women who have undergone hysterectomy are at least twice as likely to get to require surgery for stress urinary incontinence. Well, we, we have a 30-year follow-up period. We have a very long study population and we have a control group, which is two to three times as large. We have a very high statistical precision, and although we recognize that we are measuring a proxy for stress urinary incontinence, I would say that the association between hysterectomy and surgically managed stress urinary incontinence is quite reliable. 
So what does this mean for women? I mean, what should women be counselled before they have hysterectomies? How should these findings change our practice? Well, we, we feel that hysterectomy is a very good treatment for, for many conditions, as is mentioned in the paper, and we feel that it definitely is an important treatment modality for many, for many cases. We do, however, feel that it is necessary to consider other non-radical methods of treatment before you do do this, because we know now that there are long-term risks associated with the hysterectomy. So we feel that doctors should include it in their preoperative assessment and in their preoperative information to patients before the decision to do a hysterectomy is, is final. And they're not currently doing that at the moment? It is not routine to do it. The association has not been, been established before this study, so I don't think it's routine in most months to do that now. So you're suggesting that now it should be? Well, I'm suggesting that you should include this information that there is an association and let doctors and patients decide together whether or not it's worth doing a hysterectomy to improve your quality of life when you have a risk for other quality of life disorders coming on later in life. That's great. Thank you very much. Thank you. So thanks very much to Dr. Daniel Altman, who's the lead author in the paper which we're publishing this week, entitled Hysterectomy and the Risk of Stress Urinary Incontinence Surgery, Nationwide Cohort Study. And special thanks to Dr. Altman because he's currently at a conference in the Middle East, so I hope that that wasn't too muffled. And finally, before I go, just a few other things from this week to draw your attention to. We have a comment on the recent uprising in Burma and the health situation there, and also our lead editorial on malaria and whether eradication is possible. But just to end with a bit of light relief, one of our letters this week looks at romantic fiction and medical romance. Dr Brendan Kelly from the University College Dublin says that romantic fiction generates $1.2 billion in sales annually and accounts for almost 40% of fiction sold in the USA. So he did some research and studied 20 randomly selected medical romance novels. He found that most plots were set in primary care or emergency settings, including emergency departments and airborne medical teams. The most common romantic pairing was male doctor with female doctor, followed by male doctor with female nurse. Dr Kelly writes, There was a marked preponderance of brilliant, tall, muscular male doctors with chiselled features working in emergency medicine. They were commonly of Mediterranean origin and had personal tragedies in their past. Female doctors and nurses tended to be skilled, beautiful and determined, but still compassionate. Many had overcome substantial personal and professional obstacles in their lives. He concludes that these novels draw attention to the romantic possibilities of primary care settings and the apparent inevitability of uncontrolled passions in the context of emergency medicine, especially as practised on aeroplanes. These novels suggest that there is an urgent need to include instruction in the arts of romance and training programmes for doctors and nurses who intend working in these settings. It's good to have a bit of fun sometimes. So that's it from this week. Next week it should be Richard Lane again when he's hopefully safely back from Uganda. So that's me, Rona McDonald, saying bye for now.